We are starting the show today talking about a report released earlier today, a very lengthy report looking into what happened as far as online hate and hate incidents, specifically during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic as well. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we lost our collective innocence in a sense. We know now that we cannot take our communities, our jobs, our daily routines, or our political systems for granted. And we know now that along with a health crisis of disproportion, we will see social crises, such as the rise of hate and violence. We cannot be surprised by the rise of hate in future states of crisis. We must confront what we've experienced during this pandemic and take action now to prevent it from happening again. That was from earlier today when BC's Human Rights Commissioner released that report. Joining us now is Richard Zussman, Global News legislative reporter. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Well, I know you're covering this as well and writing up the key points from this report. I know it was about 500 pages, but can you take us through what the Human Rights Commissioner, what Kasari Govender found and her comments on this? Yeah, so sweeping report, 500 pages. Uh, This took well over a year uh, to do. Uh, It included interviews uh, with many, many people, organizations, 46 hearings, 52 organizations, a survey of more than 2,500 people, research through public bodies. And ultimately, what was found here is that the tools that government uh, has in place are not effective to deal with this sort of surge in online hate. And that ultimately there are not enough tools from social media companies to prevent the spread of this information. And so the recommendations that were built in uh, to this report are largely directed towards those two things. What uh, was uh, the conclusion in the report is the community is a really important place to start dealing with these issues of hate. And there are calls for the province to better support community organizations uh, to do that work. Uh, Part of it is what social media companies can do as well. So uh, the Human Rights Commissioner spoke directly to those companies. Uh, There was a lack of commitment from those companies to solve the issue of online hate. There's a lack of policies to solve the issue of online hate. And part of this is this perfect storm that through the pandemic, more and more people were spending time online, more and more people were sharing stories online, and that led to the spread of misinformation, and that misinformation drove some of this hate that we saw. So it's it's a fascinating look at an issue that we knew existed, but it's more prevalent than I think anybody thought. You know, StatsCan has done some data on this that was consolidated for the report. We've seen substantial increase in incidents, in hate crimes, in race-driven incidents, in gender-driven incidents. We've seen increases across the board comparing 2019 to 2021. And you kind of touched on this, but does the report also go into, when you talk about the change in how people were working or where people were, more people yeah. online, does it talk about the online hate? Is it is it based on on the pandemic or is it people that were engaging in this 
against certain people blaming about the pandemic or, or targeting certain groups? Or was it more general in, in a general sense, just there is more and there was more online hate? Yeah, so I think a big part of this is there are specific groups that were targeted here. And a lot of those conversations are driven through the use of misinformation. And as you mentioned, as more people are going online and sharing that information. So we saw very specific increases uh, based on gender, very specific increases based on race. Uh, and that is where a lot of that misinformation was. You know, one of the ones that's been widely reported on through the pandemic is a sharp increase in anti Asian hate, and a lot of that is driven by conspiracy theories and misinformation shared online around the origins of COVID-19 and the role that uh, Asian communities play uh, in the spread of COVID-19. And that misinformation then drove this huge increase that we saw uh, in online hate and in in physical violence and physical abuse and, and verbal abuse. Uh, that we saw uh, throughout the pandemic. So it's this cascading uh, event that led to, you know, uh, this this surge that we saw that the Human Rights Commissioner is trying to address by providing these recommendations uh, to the province. I know the report also takes a look at police-reported crimes that would be then considered hate crimes in the province. And again, that huge increase, if you look at 2021 versus 2019, uh, I I think the commissioner touched on this as well, because my my suspicion is that even if we're looking at police-reported numbers, that those numbers would be low. Yeah, they are dramatically underreported for various different reasons. There are challenges... Uh, in investigating these sort of cases. There's also a stigma associated with bringing these cases forward. uh, And there was an unwillingness uh, for many people to do so because of the stigma attached to it. So these are largely um, deflated numbers in terms of being underrepresented. And the Human Rights Commission made that very clear in her presentation, along with the presentation of so many other people who are dramatically impacted by this. And, you know, I just want to read in part one of the parts of this report, uh, which is, you know, a lack of data on incidents uh, in different sectors uh, is impeding the province's action. The commissioner requested extensive data on hate to inform the inquiry. The commissioner found that most public bodies do not collect data on hate incidents. The commissioner also found that there are data quality issues or limitations with police prosecution and court data. And also, as we mentioned, social media companies were unwilling and unable to provide the commission with data on hate on their platforms in BC or in Canada. So the fact that this doesn't even exist, Jill, Hmm. makes it very hard to solve the issue. And yes, there are recommendations here about expanding the Ministry of Education anti-hate curriculum, uh, that there are recommendations here on working with the public safety minister to fund and promote civilian and community-led province-wide reporting systems, all of that will help. But largely, this is an issue around just not having the information to properly be able to make decisions and determinations to fix what we know is a growing problem. I think, obviously, that the next part of this, Jill, is like, now that we're largely moving past the intensity of COVID-19, do we continue to see these trends grow? And that's obviously something the Human Rights Commissioner is acutely aware of and will be watching very closely. 
And with her recommendations, like you said, this report, I think it has 12 recommendations about many of the things you mentioned, social media platforms that maybe aren't doing much to remove or deal with hateful comment and such. Can, can the recommendations actually do anything, though, or is there anybody that's going to be looking to see if these recommendations are implemented? Yeah, so we heard from the Premier today on this, and he said that they are quickly going to start implementing many of these recommendations. But like you said, without having this data, actually measuring whether these things are working is, is very challenging. And ensuring that enforcement have the tools, that the court have the tools to enforce this, very challenging. So community-led projects is where we're going to start with all this, it seems. But getting uh, those projects up and running, working with communities, getting the information, getting people to come forward, all of this takes a lot of time. So to see success in this is not something that's going to be automatic. It's, go- it's going to take a seismic change in the way that people think and interact. And then um, do they feel that there are tools there to protect them as victims? Or do those that perpetrate uh, these acts of online violence, uh, do they feel, is there anything in here that makes them change their mind when they're thinking about committing those acts? And that's, that's where all these steps come into place. And that's why there are so many recommendations. Again, nearly 500 pages of this report detailing how these recommendations can work, but also most importantly, detailing some really horrific incidents of people facing online and in-person uh, hate uh, throughout this time period, starting in early 2020 and ending late in 2022. All right, Richard, thanks as always for joining us and bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure as always. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us today. Well, members of Parliament are gearing up to grill the CEOs of Canada's largest grocery store chains. This is going to be happening at the House of Commons Agriculture Committee on Wednesday. This is all part of the food inflation study. Experts saying they should be pushing the leaders of Loblaw companies, Metro and Empire, for more transparency on why the grocers are continuing to make so much money. Well, joining us to talk more about this today is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. I know we've talked about this, and I think it was last time we talked, you mentioned that even when the owners of these companies are being questioned, they're not being asked the right questions. And I saw earlier today, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh tweeted out, actually just in the last half hour, he uh, tweeted this out again, saying that in 24 hours, I will look Galen Weston in the eyes and demand answers. What do you think they should be asking the leaders of these companies? That's a that's a funny thing for Jackman Singh to say. He's not even on the committee. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're politicizing food inflation already, and they haven't shown up. <laughs> that's the problem, Jill. I mean, they're politicizing the issue. Let's actually allow them to speak, listen to what they have to say, and ask, and and let's ask the right questions. And and, and the right questions are as follows: one. Food sales. How much profits are generated from food sales specifically in isolation? Forget about cosmetics, clothing, uh, prescription drugs, everything. If you look at food sales, Loblaws, for example, uh, food sales have actually gone up 8.4% last quarter. Now, food inflation is at 10.4%. So food sales are growing at a much slower pace. 
So that's something that Canadians need to know, but we need to know more about the 8.4 and uh, and how much profits are generated from food sales specifically to the blackout periods from November to February. Vendors are not allowed to increase prices they charge to grocers. Well, guess what? Prices are jacked up in October and jacked up again in February. Does that work for consumers? How are they impacted by all this? I would ask that question. Thirdly, uh, I would ask them about margins. So margins have been really stable in Canada. I don't believe there's profiteering going on. However, and this is a big however, margins in Canada are double of what they are in the U.S., which means that our market is less competitive. So I would certainly ask that particular question to CEOs, why is it that Canada is much less competitive as a market than the U.S.? And I know that uh, touching on one of those questions and we've heard from some of the grocers and the, the answer seems to be that saying that the margins on food haven't gone up instead saying that they're making money off of those other products. But like you've pointed out as well, even in financial statements, there's no breakdown of, OK, are you making money on cosmetics then and greeting cards and not produce? But but we don't have those breakdowns. That's right, exactly. That's what we we need to get to those numbers tomorrow. Hopefully, uh, CEOs will have that um, again with uh, with a few minutes they have to answer. I'm not sure that we're going to get there, but at least as an effort, it is going to be political theater. But CEOs need to show their faces uh, out of respect. I think it was important to go to the committee. It is the House of Commons after all. But uh, I mean. Going, moving forward, I think it's important to recognize that uh, that there is a grocer code of conduct coming up, and the grocer of con- the, the, the intent of the grocer code of conduct is to lessen the power that companies like Loblaw and Sobeys have. Uh, right now, their dominance is pushing is pushing back processors. And, and, and many of them are small, medium-sized businesses, and they're also eliminating independent grocers, thus eliminating options gr- consumers have in cities and towns of our nation. And so certainly the question I would ask grocers is whether or not they actually support the grocer code of conduct or not. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because whenever we talk about this as well, people will point out that you can go into one store and a product is listed at one price. You can go into another store and it can be a completely different price. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think anybody, if you walk into, and I'll just use Whole Foods as, as an example, if you walk into Whole Foods, you're going to expect it's it's going to be expensive, whereas the exact same product you might see in Walmart and it's not going to be as much. So, I mean, grocers can charge whatever they want can't they? And, and that we're really only talking about an issue if we're, if we're talking about collusion. That, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, but it is Canada, so it's a free market. Uh, companies are allowed to make money, last time I checked, mm. anyways. And the food inflation rate in Canada is the third lowest among G7 countries still. Only the U.S. and, and Japan has have a lower food inflation rate. So we're doing okay However, people want answers. They want to know. And if there is there collusion in the system, well, 
We don't know for sure. Uh, we know what happened to the bread cartel investigation still going on after eight years. And that's why people are upset. They feel unprotected. Nothing is actually happening. And the Competition Bureau needs to make sure that it does its job in order to make Canadians feel safe. And, and I suppose, too, if we're seeing these different prices in different stores, doesn't that tell us, and again, like you said, it's a free market, they, they're allowed to make a profit, but if the prices were suddenly all the same, wouldn't that be more of an issue because it would point to, to collusion? Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> That's why, like, often people get upset because they, they see the same product priced differently in at two different locations. I say, well, isn't that what, you're, what you want? Because if... I mean, right now, grocers are so hated, they can't win. There's, there's a no-win scenario here. You, you, if they price things differently, they'll be accused of gouging. If they price all products the same price, they'll be accused of, of colluding. So that's right, right now, it, things are really sensitive, and so we just need to get to the bottom of this. So it's a good thing that they're showing up tomorrow uh, and hopefully uh, people will get to listen in. I don't think it's going to be a pay-per-view event, but it should. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just not too much because people are already mad at how much uh, by, by they're the charging. By the way, a piece of trivia for you. This is going to be the first time that both Galen Weston and Michael Medline, the CEO of Empire, will be seen in public together in the same room after Michael Medline threatened to sue Galen Weston five years ago when the bread story came out. Hmm. First time they've yep. seen, been seen then in public together. Yeah, absolutely. I've never seen them together in public, so this is going to be a first. And, and this is going to be the first time that Gail Weston actually has ever testified in Ottawa, period. And and which I think a lot of people, we don't often get a lot of people tuning in to committee meetings and such, but I think there will be because there's so much interest in this. But realistically, though, what do you expect we might learn? Uh. I think I think we're going to learn more about uh, their personalities. Uh, I, I've met all three. I know them well. I mean, they're good people, but they have different personalities. They don't, and and some of them, some of them aren't as patient. <laughs> so after an hour of grilling, I'm certainly looking looking forward to see how Eric Lasleche, the, the CEO of Metro, which is probably the most unknown person of the three. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, if you go back to three years ago when all CEOs testified about the hero pay scandal, Eric Lafleche was not the whole, was not the one that was the most patient. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Um, yeah. I wanted to, to share with you, uh, because you talked about how this is politicized, and uh, another quote from Jagmeet Singh that uh, he put out saying that he's going to tell us something that Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev won't, uh, saying that we've summoned Galen Weston and grocery CEOs to testify. And then he goes on to say, I don't care how rich and powerful they are, they owe you an answer about why they are charging you $40 for chicken. I mean, that too. Yes, we saw that story of the, the prime chicken that was selling for $40 or, or slightly more than $40. I mean, it's not it as though every... $36.35, by the way. Right. <laughs> but it, it's not like every package of chicken out there is $40. And, and, but but what, exactly. are you, what are your thoughts but about by that? By the way, that week when the CTV reporter took the picture, $36 for five breasts of chicken, five breasts of chicken was actually even more expensive up the street at a Sobe store, but nobody cared. <laughs> 
But but that's the thing, isn't it? That and and you could probably go and and buy chicken. I think there there are family packs of chicken that often have the sticker on them for fourteen dollars. That that doesn't exactly. that hasn't changed in months. And exactly. So, so what, the, here's the thing about the, the chicken breast story, which was really interesting. The following week, seven days later, chicken breasts were twenty percent off across the GTA. And why would that be? Consumers have way more power than you think, Jill. Hmm. If you're told, listen, chicken breasts are too expensive, they're gouging you, and you walk away, that's power. And that's what, exactly what happened. Chicken breasts weren't selling, so they actually, you know, cut off 20%. We have more power than we think. Buying something is a signal. Not buying something is also a signal to grocers. Oh, yeah. We vote with our feet and we vote with our dollars at the grocery store. And, and Sylvan, something else you mentioned too about independent grocers or smaller grocery store operators. So when you talk about the power of the consumer, isn't that a place also where there is that power and to keep independent grocers alive? It's obviously the consumers that are going to be spending the money. Uh, is, is that the, the future of them or the, the choices people make as far as whether or not we are going to see the landscape of grocers have those stores or shift to completely the big grocery operations? Uh, absolutely. We, we need more stores in Canada. We need a discount grocer, like a real one, an independent one, like Little or Aldi. And this is probably the one thing I would keep in mind as a as an MP on that committee. How do we make Canada a more attractive market to invest in for grocers? Right now, things are cozy for grocers. Uh, margins are double what they are in the U.S. Why? Because the market here is not competitive. How do we make it more competitive? I don't think that Galen Wesson will want that, but the committee will. And so how do we get to that place? And, and the answer, answer is related to interprovincial barriers, taxes, labor laws we have in Canada. It's extremely difficult to do business nationally in Canada. Why do you think Nordstrom left the country last week? Target left the country in 2015. Sears left also in Lowe's. They left for reasons, very, very important reasons. Canada is an expensive place to service. No, it's very, very true. Well, I know a lot of people will be watching this committee and seeing what the grocers are saying. Sylvain, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. But thank you again so much for, jo- for joining us today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Our next guest is here to talk about what it's like being a biomedical engineering student and about getting more women, getting more diversity when it comes to including people in the STEM fields. Coralie Chun is a fourth year biomedical engineering student at UBC. Coralie, thank you so much for being with us and chatting about this for a bit. Thank you so much for having me. How did you first get involved? Yeah, so it pretty much happened in grade 12 when I initially started looking at things beyond science and what kind of degrees I could uh, get into. And I just happened to go one day with my brother to a biomedical engineering um, conference that UBC was holding. And I thought it was really cool combining technology and medicine and all the different um, things that you could create with it in the future. And that's, that's all where it started. Interesting. Did you have a background though, or had you? Did you have an interest in that before you kind of had that exposure? No, I didn't have too big of an interest. I knew my dad had done a bit of engineering, but at the time, I didn't know what engineering was. I thought it was just building bridges and 
and that was the extent of my knowledge. So it was very much uh, an, an interest in hands-on work, and it seemed to be the right fit, and I'm glad I went with it. And part of the reason we're talking about this today is because there is really an effort to get more people not only interested in this, but to get more people more comfortable, I think, going into programs like this and taking part in this. What was that like for you as far as this hasn't typically or or, or in the past really been a, a diverse place or a place even where a lot of women have been attracted to it? Yeah, for me, UBC Engineering has given me a lot of opportunities to become an ambassador and and find a platform for myself to promote engineering to women. So I've been making a lot of presentations at high schools and more specifically high schools outside of Vancouver because that's where a high concentration of racial minorities are. And just in order to get them knowing what is engineering, because a lot of them are in my position where they've never heard of it or they don't really know what it is and they don't know the extent of what they can do with it. It's not just a field where you can you can make bridges, but it's so much more than that. And I think it's important to introduce uh, students, especially girls, to it quite early because I feel like they're told that it's something that boys do, but it's definitely something that girls can do and be good at. And it's a great way to exercise their imagination. And when you talk about that too, that it is so much more than, than building bridges, what are some of the areas you think that don't get a lot of recognition or, or that people don't know a lot about? Yeah, so I think biomedical engineering is a great one. It's quite a new discipline. And in the past, it's very much been under mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, but it's becoming its own field. And it's great for people who are interested in health sciences, but also have an interest in um, engineering and in building and in critical thinking. Um, And I'm just such a big advocate for it because I do thoroughly enjoy the ability to kind of cross the lines between engineering and healthcare and being able to communicate in both languages. It's a big skill that's really required as a biomedical engineer, and it makes uh, the discipline quite unique. And uh, I think you kind of touched on this, but I'm curious too on on the background as far as how much do people have to pay attention to what, say, electives they're taking in high school or, or specifically grade 12 as far as being able to make that transition smoother or more easily if you are going into an engineering type field? That's an excellent question. I would say I highly recommend taking calculus classes and physics classes, chemistry classes, just to get yourself like understanding how to apply um, how to apply critical thinking in different areas. Those are some of the biggest classes that you'll have to um, continue on in your first year. Um, classes like biology would be great to take if you're interested in biomedical engineering, but it's not a hard and fast rule. You can definitely catch up. Um, but definitely taking some physics, chemistry, and calculus classes. All right, that which can be uh, intimidating as well for people. Maybe yeah. if, if you're not already doing that, or if you've been, uh, you're kind of uh, wary of doing that as well. But but like you said, it's it, there are so many different arms and different different things to, to potentially go into. Have you seen things change much? I know you're in your fourth year. Have you seen things change during the four years? Yeah, I would say that UBC is extremely receptive to feedback from students and very supportive of students who want to start, let's say, a club or a movement. For example, um, the National Society of Black Engineers just opened a chapter at UBC uh, being led by one of my classmates. And it's really nice to see that there was support in funding, support in advertising. And there's so many other different um, groups and platforms that have started up like that. So it's definitely, I would say, a student-run effort. Um, and it can be 
quite exhausting at times, but it is very nice to see that these changes are being made. I saw as well the things that you might not think about in that field of work, uh, uh, writing algorithms or looking at robotics or, or simulations of things in the, in the medical field. And, and how challenging is it, again, to, to really get that information out there or to get it out there, uh, the, the kind of really exciting and fun things, that, that, that doors that could be opened? Yeah, for sure. So I would say um, it's, I thoroughly enjoy personal projects. I think they're a great way to grow your, uh, your skills. And that's something that I would advocate to younger students who are interested in learning more about engineering. Just find a small project, even if it's just making something out of cardboard or if it's creating a small algorithm. That'll get you the skills that you need to build up to some of the bigger projects that you see in university. Um, I know that during my summer of grade 12, I took some online tutorials for Python, and I ended up getting a position on a design team at UBC called Open Robotics, where I actually got to implement some of that code that I learned in order to control a robot's navigation and the way it localizes itself and even a little bit of machine learning. So definitely try in any way to get some personal projects under your belt. And and how competitive is it, do you, do you think, or what are you preparing for then uh, as far as going into the job market? For me, I would say uh, just building as many skills as I can. In the first year, I was very focused on mechanical skills, and I thought I might want to go into the mechanical stream of biomedical engineering. But then I realized that it's better to open yourself up to more opportunities. So if there's a software position that looks interesting, even if you might not have as many skills, Go for it and apply to it and don't shut yourself off because you could gain a lot of um, knowledge and a lot of competencies from there. So I've just been trying to build my electrical, mechanical, and software skills through design projects, personal projects, internships. And what I've seen from doing internships is that um, even if you don't have all the skills, just showing that you have an interest in a certain area or that you've done some personal projects in a certain area really shows an employer motivation. Um, and yeah, it can honestly just be a great talking point and it could get you a job. All right. Well, it sounds like a, a great field and it's so great that you are out there and making sure people know about it and hopefully attracting more people who maybe didn't know about it in the past. Coralie, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Canadian Association of Retired Persons is calling on the Premier of BC to do more to fight ageism and to give the seniors advocate in this province more power. And joining us to talk more about this is spokesperson with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, Ramona Captain, joins us. Ramona, thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What specifically would you like the Premier to do? Well, um, we feel that greater accountability and, uh, accountability and transparency um, would be achieved if our seniors' advocate, uh, Isabel McKenzie's monitoring report, would be given prominence uh, by being sent to the Select Standing Committee on Health and then to the full regis- uh, legislature. Right now, uh, she submits her report to the Minister of Health 
and uh, the scope of her findings is is beyond the uh, jurisdiction of the Minister of Health. For example, uh, Isabel McKenzie's report uh, deals with housing, transportation, income support, and uh, personal care. It's also interesting how many of her recommendations, which are all very, very um, valid, how many have actually been implemented. Uh, Isabel was appointed in March of 2014. That's been nine years and um you know it, it she she does present excellent reports but um I, I, I'm at a loss to know how many have actually been implemented. The, the current uh, BC budget that was just brought down, uh, there seems to be no provisions at all made for at-home care. It's still completely dismal, and uh, we all know it's way cheaper to uh, keep people at home rather than put them in long-term care. But, uh, I mean, there are premature admissions to long-term care, and that money could be, could be better, better spent if, um, if we kept people where they belong, where they want to be. And, um, you know, the, these are all the things that uh, we're looking at as, as uh, Canada's foremost advocacy association. And I know the numbers, uh, looking at uh, Stats Canada numbers, showing people aged 65 and older and how big that portion of the population is going to be uh, for the first time. I I think the number was surpassing 1 million. Uh, Do you think that should also be putting some pressure on government or pressure to pay more attention? Absolutely, absolutely. It really should. Um, Seniors, older adults have lived experience and we really need to be consulted more and actually listened to uh, before decisions are made about about our care and, and what we really do need. Um, reports should just sit on shelves. Um, there's a lot of consultation that needs to take place. And, uh, and indeed, sometimes consultation does take place, but then what, what happens to it? That, that's what we're really concerned about. And when you talk about things too, like home care, uh, like long-term care, uh, what would you like to see then as far as if the seniors advocate makes that recommendation or that that those become legislation or or what would you like to see happen specifically to things that Isabel McKenzie puts forward? Well, for example, at-home care, like I said, it's still dismal. It, there is a waiting list for, for people who, um, you know, have an episode and uh, need help at home. It, instead, uh, they're put on a waiting list. I believe the waiting list now is something like a year. And uh, then they're assessed, and I, I think that uh, the people who do the assessments, I mean, they're overworked and not enough of them. I mean, don't get me started on the lack of doctors and nurses and qualified help. I mean, why why isn't the government fast-tracking, fast-tracking so many of our uh, immigrants who have, have, you know, qualifications from overseas? They could be fast-tracked and they could become, you know, v- very viable uh, health care providers. But they keep saying, now, now they're saying they're going to do it, but it's going to take forever. It's going to be years from now. I know people from from overseas who have have very good credentials, 
and uh, they have to pay a ton of money in order to get upgraded. And it takes such a long time that they just can't do it. They give up. And, I mean, I, I've got a perfect example of that myself, not in healthcare, but in teaching. I um, I was once a teacher, <laughs> one of my many careers, and uh, back in Ontario. Now, um, the Ontario curriculum is the golden standard all around the world. I've taught in uh, various countries, uh, not, not the English language, but uh, literature, um, uh, grade 12 education in uh, Vietnam, in Bangladesh, in uh, Malaysia. I come to BC in 2009 and figure, oh, I'll pick up a few, um, you know, a few jobs here and there uh, doing some teaching. Well, I had to go back with my credentials. I had to go back to university and take an, a year and a half of extra courses. Like, why? Why is BC so odd that way? And, uh, you know, so, so much more could, we, could be done if we looked at uh, just fast-tracking everything. It's not rocket science. And also, um, you know, including, including organizations that uh, have done the background research, that know what needs to be done, that have memberships that uh, we, we talk to our members all the time. We have that lived experience. And I know you make an excellent point as well. I, I also saw a quote from, I, I believe it was from you uh, in speaking, and uh, that's been running in our newscast today as well, that, that oftentimes these, these issues, and we're talking about older adults, that, they're, that they are very much overlooked and that people look at, at this segment of the population and, and uh, the, the idea is, oh, go sit in a rocking chair somewhere, which, which sounds harsh, but it also, it, it kind of, it really does make the point. So how do you combat that? Well, yeah, this, this is something dreadful. I mean, I'm, I'm an older adult. I still do a ton of stuff. I go out and volunteer. I have several jobs I, I give to the community. And so many of us do. Uh, the Semiamo Seniors Planning Table, all the volunteers with CARP. There, there are many organizations in the community where we have older adults giving back. And, uh, I mean, I'm on social media, on Twitter. Um, I have a few people calling me Grammy Rammy, go sit in, the, in a rocking chair, which I find quite amusing because, um, I mean, it's just not the case. We are valid uh, people with great experience, with ideas, and uh, you can't just expect us to, to, you know, shut up and let everybody else do do whatever they think is perfect for an older adult. That just isn't the way it works. In other cultures, uh, elders are respected and they're consulted. So uh, ageism is, is just such a dreadful thing. CARP has been fighting ageism and advocating against it for such a long time. I mean, with a birthday card, go go to any, any drugstore and look at the birthday section. Uh, cards for anybody 60 plus is, oh, your birthday candles are going to burn down the house. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we, we won't go into the more disgusting ones. But, uh, like, why? Why? 
it, it does you know when you reach a certain age it doesn't mean that you're not you're not viable and you're not contributing and don't get me started on this expression the silver tsunami tsunami means that uh, you know bad things are coming bad things are not coming seniors have contributed so much to uh the world i mean we've paid our way and yet you see signs like uh, no senior discount. You've had you've had lots of time to get the money. Right. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, when, when we talk about this as well, and you mentioned a, a big one, and that is health care and home care and, and, and making sure what's needed and what is the best option is, is put out there. Uh, what are your thoughts then on, on when we've, we've seen through the pandemic and we saw the impact on long-term care facilities, so we saw the, the impact and, and clear gaps in the system. In your mind, though, has, has much been done as far as looking at that, the, like you said, the benefits of people staying in their homes, so the, the, what needs to be done to make long-term care better. Uh, are we paying much attention to that? Well, that's, that's the big question. That's the conundrum. Uh, we talk about it, but what are we actually doing? As far as long-term care goes, um, what, what we need to do in long-term care, I mean, people are saying, oh, private, uh, don't, don't have anything private, make everything non-private because, you know, the private ones are just grabbing the money. Well, that's not a solution. Look what happened in Quebec where, where they weren't private facilities, they were government-run. There were a great a great number of deaths, just astronomical. Um, what we really need is more inspections uh, in the hotel industry. Uh, there is an inspector. You don't know when they're going to come. They 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 just come unannounced. You don't know who they are. They check in the next morning. Boom shakalad. They come down with their pad, and they go into every room. They look in drawers. They look under the bed. They check for dust. And uh, good heavens, if if you don't pass, you have a certain length of time to pass, or you're going to lose your franchise. So that's exactly what should be happening in long-term care. We should have inspections, but I do not believe that they are happening. And that that would be a, a fine way of um, of making sure that things are done the way they're supposed to be done. But but the real the real matter here is is that um, we really need more at-home care support because ask ask any person whose health is failing. They do not want to go into a facility. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, they might want to go into a lovely retirement home because a lot of them are, are very much like, um, you know, lovely villas. And uh, uh, as long as you, you don't need the nursing assistance, but once you do, people just want to stay at home. Why can't we get more care at home? And also families are the ones who are mostly taking care of their elders. Um, they're taking time off work and uh, or, or quitting their jobs altogether. And, you know, maybe they get a tax credit, but that tax credit should be way more and it should be refundable. This is something CARP is advocating for. So, you know, let, let's keep people at home where they want to stay. Let's really look at that issue. No, it's a very good point. And Ramona, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today and to raise more awareness about this. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much.